This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Breaking the Impasse, Electoral Politics, Mass Action, and the New Socialist Movement in the United States by Kim Moody. In his latest book, veteran socialist writer Kim Moody provides a masterful analysis of the political impasse which has shaped the rise of a new socialist movement in the U.S. Sharp inequality, state violence, climate catastrophe, and a globally ascendant right proceed apace while the U.S. political arena remains defined and dominated by two capitalist political parties. Moody situates the historic electoral campaigns of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, along with the growth of organizations like DSA, in this context, and incisively assesses the revived movement's focus on electoral strategies, ultimately arguing for an alternative orientation based in a politics of mass action, anti-racism, and independent working-class organizing. Breaking the Impasse by Kim Moody, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's interview is with four comrades who are organizers and leaders in the American tenant movement. Shanti Singh, Tracy Rosenthal, Renee Moya, and Sia Weaver. This is a really important conversation because the places where people live and the relationships of economic domination that define the home are critical sites for organizing, parallel to the sort of organizing that must be done in the places where people work and the relationships of economic domination that define labor. As the contradictions of real estate capitalism intensify and the housing crisis becomes more generalized, those organizing opportunities to build tenant power and decommodify the housing system are growing. This is also what I've recently been dedicating much of my own organizing work in Rhode Island to. And just this week, Pioneer Tenants United, a tenant union supported by my organization Reclaim Our Eye, has reached a crisis point. Slumlord Pioneer Investments has issued retaliatory evictions and terminations of tenancy against at least five Pioneer households for speaking out against horrific and dangerous conditions pervasive across this slumlord's 60-plus buildings in the state. Pioneer tenants have been living with rats, bugs, mold, leaks, lack of heat and hot water, raw sewage, and, most dangerously, lead paint that has poisoned children. And... And so instead of asking you to support The Dig at Patreon this week, I'm asking you to contribute and to contribute generously to the Pioneer Tenant Support Fund. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the next few weeks, enough to cover each impacted household's first month's rent and security deposit in case they need to move, with some left over in the quite possible case that more tenants are hit with evictions. I've posted a link to the support fund in the show notes. This is a daunting sum for us to raise, but it's absolutely critical to our campaign and to the future of tenant organizing in Rhode Island that we reach our goal. Please help out. 
Pioneer's retaliation is a clear violation of Rhode Island law, which bars landlords from seeking to remove tenants from their homes in retaliation for complaining to government officials or to the landlord about code violations or because, quote, the tenant has organized or become a member of a tenants' union or similar organization. Right now, reclaim and impacted pioneer tenants are aggressively pursuing legal remedies. But, to our knowledge, this will be the first time ever that tenants' legal right to organize has been tested in Rhode Island court, at least in memory. That's because Pioneer Tenants United is the most aggressive and broad-based attack on a slumlord in Rhode Island in memory. And that's why I need you to support Pioneer Tenants United. This is not about charity. This is about solidarity. This is mutual aid to support tenant leaders who have taken on an enormous risk on behalf of the entire nascent tenant movement in Rhode Island. Pioneer Investments is trying to break our union by forcing these tenants from their homes. We must ensure that this is not a defeat. We must instead make sure that this is the first major tenant victory against a Rhode Island slumlord. A victory that will lay the groundwork for a mass movement of tenants in my state that will put an end to slumlord exploitation and abuse and build the political power that we need to win social housing. Again, I've posted a link to the Pioneer Tenant Support Fund in the show notes. Please give generously and please circulate this call for solidarity far and wide. We're aiming to raise $50,000. That is a ton of money. It's a really, truly daunting sum. Please give what you can. And if you can give big, please do. This is a make-or-break moment for a historic tenant organizing campaign that will help decide the future of the tenant movement in Rhode Island. I'll return to asking you to support this podcast next week. Please support Pioneer Tenants United now. Okay, here's my interview with Shanti Singh, Tracy Rosenthal, Renee Moya, and Sia Weaver. Shanti Singh is the Legislative and Communications Director at Tenants Together, a California coalition of over 50 tenant unions and housing justice organizations. Outside of work, she organizes with DSA and San Francisco tenants around social housing, tenant protections, community land trusts, public banking, rent control, and more. Tracy Rosenthal is a writer and co-founder of the LA Tenants Union. Their book, Abolish Rent, written with their mentor, Leonardo Vilchis, is forthcoming from Verso. Renee Christian Moya is the Tenant Power Coordinator with the Debt Collective and an organizer with the Los Angeles Tenants Union. He's the former campaign director for a statewide ballot initiative to strengthen rent control in California and has worked extensively on tenant rights, homelessness, pandemic-era emergency legislation, and social housing. Sia Weaver is the coordinator of Housing Justice for All, a statewide coalition of grassroots organizations fighting to build tenant power and end homelessness in New York State. She has worked as a tenant organizer, campaigner, and housing policy advocate in New York State for over 10 years and is from Rochester, New York. Oh, and one quick note before we get started, you will hear people refer to LATU and ATUN. LATU is the LA Tenants Union, ATUN is the Autonomous Tenants Union Network.
Shanti Singh, Tracy Rosenthal, Renee Moya, and Sia Weaver. Welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Yeah, hi, thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. To get us started, can you quickly say your name, the organizations that you're a part of, and what sort of campaigns or priorities you and others are currently waging or working on? I can just start. My name is Renee Moya. Uh, I am an organizer with the Debt Collective, which is the nation's first debtors union, and also a member organizer with the Los Angeles Tenants Union here in Southern California. Uh, in terms of campaigns that we're waging, I think it, uh, it really does kind of span the, the gamut of uh, campaigns from uh, efforts around social housing at the state and federal level, as well as an ongoing set of projects always around tenant protections and individual campaigns to keep uh, tenants in their homes. I think that is roughly where we're at at the moment. I'm Shanti Singh. I am the comms and legislative director at Tenants Together. Um, We are a 50 plus group statewide coalition in California of mostly tenant unions, but other housing justice organizations as well across the state. That's my day job. Um, Outside of my day job, um, I've done a lot of housing work um, in San Francisco and the Bay Area, which is where I live, particularly around social housing, uh, land use, public banking, tenant organizing, all of the all of those wonderful things, community land trusts. And so I have a extracurricular life, too. um, But a lot of that also, um, especially rent control and social housing um, are issues that I work on in my day job. Tracy. Hey, I'm Tracy Rosenthal. I helped start the LA Tenants Union in 2015. And recently, I've been spending more time in New York, where I'm helping start an organizing effort in Flatbush. Um, And also, um, I'm organizing my own building. And we're today we're celebrating our fifth month of rent strike. So that's really exciting. I think just like, you know, looking at I'm in LA, I'm back in LA now, um, working with my mentor on our book. And it's interesting to really see the stages of organizations that, with the stage of organization that we're at and thinking about the work that we're doing in New York, um, really just that spade work of door knocking and bringing people out. And then to be here and see the union in what, you know, one of my comrades referred to as a process of refounding, um, which is, you know, seeing the organization really get taken over by its base members and re like reestablished its meeting structures in the different locals. Um, that's really like rooted in the communities that it's in. So I am having this really double experience of organizing right now. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, My name is Sia and I run Housing Justice for All, which is a statewide coalition of grassroots tenant organizations across New York that represent tenants and homeless New Yorkers. We are really working to build tenant power that is capable of challenging the role that the real estate industry plays in Albany. So we support the growth of tenant unions all over New York State. We support working those tenant unions, working with those tenant unions and bringing them together to craft a policy agenda and then campaign for it in our in our state house. I have been doing tenant organizing in New York State for a little over 10 years. And in that time, I worked to 
helped co-found the Crown Heights Tenant Union. I've worked with tenants who have wanted to take over their buildings and convert them into limited equity cooperatives. And now I'm in this role of forming this, forming and growing the statewide coalition of tenant unions, tenant associations, and organizations that represent homeless New Yorkers um, uh, to win political power in Albany. My organization was founded in early 2020, and, and we redirected our focus toward housing in late 2021 because it, it was a strategic choice we made because it became clear that housing was the concrete issue people were facing in huge numbers and in a really dire way. And so there was both a major organizing need and also a major organizing opportunity there. But you all have been working on housing and tenant organizing a lot longer than that. How has the housing crisis becoming this more generalized crisis in recent years changed the terrain of struggle? I mean, I, I can start by saying, like, what's different? I mean, I, 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 there's always been I mean, a housing crisis for especially low-income folks, but for the working class in general. But I think that there's a lot more interest and attention in the at least eight years that I've been doing this because it's impacting more and more people, right? Because it's sort of impacting people at the at, at a sort of higher levels of income, higher levels in the working class, um, and so I think that that particular, I mean, th- this is this has been an issue definitely post 2008 in general, and that's when you know, Tenants Together, where I work, was founded, was in the aftermath of 2008. But I think we've noticed that shift. I mean, I think that's just a broader social shift in terms of the the sort of background um, around the work that everybody's doing. Renee, yeah, I would I would just say that you know I've been organizing. Uh, you know, in and around the issues of homelessness and housing for, gosh, at this point, about 12 to 14 years, with the emphasis kind of going between homelessness and housing, I think in different stages of my life, kind of changing up as as the, the terrain has changed. But I think one of the, the kind of interesting things about that organizing is that initially, when I started organizing on issues of housing, during the financial crisis, it was very much a crisis that was focused around homeowners on both sides of the Atlantic, right? Uh, I w- was at the time in the, in the UK. By the time I moved back to the US, I was basically still organizing into that breach where folks had you know, lost their homes. While at the same time, I was also organizing around homelessness issues. I think it was until roughly the the middle of the the 2010s that or 20 teens that I started organizing directly around tenant issues, and it's for precisely the same reasons that I think Shanti has kind of laid out. Right, the idea that class composition, if you will, of the folks who were being affected by the housing crisis had had definitely shifted. There were folks who were more on the uh, you know upper end of the middle class who were starting to to feel that pinch, that crisis. But there was also, I think, the the other kind of analytical side of it, right? The fact that we, any of us who have been organizing around housing had, you know, very much came to realize that rental housing was the next stage of the crisis or another uh, area in which capital and capitalists, frankly, were basically shifting or changing uh, what our, you know, the nature of, of, of tenure and and how people's lives were being affected by housing. I think it was almost a an inevitable sort of move into uh, tenant organizing specifically and being able to, to recognize how whenever we talked about things like gentrification, we can no longer just, you know, talk about how, uh, you know, foreclosures had, had moved out entire populations from uh, poor or working class communities, how 
to deal with that issue, to deal with that crisis, we really had to uh, grapple with the situation uh, of tenants on the ground. Um, and so I think that over the long durée, I think has been the, the big shift for me, at least personally. Yeah, I think I'd just like echo what you both are saying in terms of understanding a crisis as something that has always affected the poor that suddenly affects the middle and upper middle class, right? Like that's the kind of media, that's when something um, arrives in the media as crisis. I mean, I think it's really important to think about when, for me, when I started, you know, the problem that we heard was gentrification, right? The displacement and replacement of the poor for profit. Um, and that is really what we founded the union to beat back and like the state of just the control of real estate over the lives of the poor and working class people in the places where we lived. But I, I think now when I think of like, what is the stage of terrain that we're at? Like, I, I mean, I, I feel like part of it is as more unhoused people are um, you know, joining our local chapters and like from experiences that I've had organizing. I mean, what I'm really seeing is the stepped up policing apparatus where now we have a shelter system that's as pre presented as humanitarian aid, presented as housing, but it's really more like a combination of housing and jail. And we have a new kinds of legal apparatus where legal categories are invented like participants in programs to basically automate these like kinds of violence that the state is waging on people without housing, um, without indoor housing. And like, I think that this is kind of the terrain that we're in right now that, you know, it's like thinking about cities as this engine of and, repository for an immense amount of wealth and the way that the repressive forces of the state are really like gearing up to defend and intensify that. I mean, I think that that's like, I, I feel like that's happening in ways that the we are not quite prepared for, but that we really should be. See ya. I, you know, I'm tenant organizing in New York, all over New York State, and, and working with tenant organizers all over New York State. And I think it's important to sort of situate the work that we're doing today in a long, long history of tenant struggle in, in New York. So we've had some form of rent control in New York State since the 1920s, and we also have had for many, many years an incredibly powerful real estate industry that is using valuable land in New York City, but really across the state to speculate and generate an immense amount of wealth. And so I really think about our state's sort of rent control laws and the general terrain of tenant organizing as like competing, like basically that the state is a terrain on which like real estate is fighting and so are tenants. Um, and in recent years, I mean, the, the sort of shape of the New York state housing movement has shifted quite a bit. I think for quite a long time, uh, the the housing movement, you know, the housing movement started our sort of current iteration in the last hundred years. It really starts with like socialists organizing for rent control in New York City, immense like immense housing shortages and poor living conditions. 
And over the years, it shifted to become a lot more professionalized. Um, And I think our sort of current iteration of the housing movement relies way too much on community development corporations and these sort of 501c3 nonprofits that took over a lot of housing in New York um, in the 1970s and the 1980s after a period of divestment. For a long time, that was what characterized the housing movement in New York. That is shifting. There is a lot more grassroots tenant activity, and there is a lot more people organizing directly in their buildings for things like rent control than had happened recently. And I think we're sort of also seen in recent years, in addition to the things that everyone else has said about a rise of more people feeling the crunch all over the state and the country. We're also seeing an immense amount of like small landlord backlash here to a growing tenant movement. So I think it's always been true that the landlords have been in power, but after, you know, two years of various forms of eviction moratoria um, across the country, we are certainly seeing landlords getting a lot more bold and gross with how they attempt to wield their political power. On the left, we think a lot about about workers and the working class, including the the leverage of workers in particular sectors. So what sort of social grouping are tenants? And and what's your assessment of their place in the political economic order and then their role in transforming it? Is it a form of working class organizing basically comparable or parallel to labor organizing, organizing the same people off the shop floor in in the domain of social reproduction rather than production or or something different going on? In law two, we define tenant as someone who doesn't have control over their housing. Um, And another way of looking at that is as someone who inhabits but doesn't own property, right? And someone who doesn't own property in a country whose electoral system was built on trying to keep the threat of the property list at bay. And in our economic system that is increasingly based on property ownership as the sole means of any kind of financial security as the social wage is being withdrawn. And so for me, right, like that's what it that's what a tenant is. And the role of the tenant, I think of as, you know, I think at this point the statistic is maybe like four years old, but I think I remember 60% of the world's wealth is held in real estate and 75% of that is in housing. So for me, and I think a lot of the um, thinking behind the tenants union, right, is that the role of the tenant is to expropriate and redistribute that hoarded wealth. And more than that, right, it's to democratize the control over the spaces where we live. So if a tenant is someone who doesn't control their own housing, then a tenant's union is supposed to not make that a condition without dignity um, or stability. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Tracy. Um, and that's also, you know, not just, I mean, not just where I work, but also, you know, even in say like DSA, um, so I'm pretty active in DSA. Um, and some of us here are too. Th- that that's kind of how we would define tenant as well. And in, in my experience, I think that's a pretty shared definition. It is, you know, it, it, you can be a housed tenant, you can be an unhoused tenant, you can be a uh, if you're a victim of foreclosure, like you were in the 2008 crisis, if you're a squatter, it, I mean, those are all different forms of, of tenancy. And I think that also 
I mean, that doesn't just speak to sort of what's happening in America. That also speaks to sort of what the, the global housing crisis looks like in all its different forms. But yeah, I, I, I would also say, I think a lot of folks that I work with definitely, you know, a union at work, a union at home is kind of a slogan that we like to use a lot <laughs> or, you know, um, up with wages, down with rents. So I do think that it is kind of working in, in, in tandem with the labor movement. It's the idea of just, you know, your home, just like your workplace is another, is another side of struggle. Sia, Renee? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's something that we should include in this conversation is how real estate ownership is getting a lot more concentrated over the last 10 and 20 years, really coming off of the foreclosure crisis. But that's like a trend that's been growing. And so similarly, I think to sort of labor organizing and labor organizing in its heyday, you're like looking for sort of hoarders of wealth. That's a very good way to um, to describe it. The real estate industry, the more consolidated it gets, the more the conditions for tenant organizing as something and tenant union formation as something that is really comparable historically to the role of the labor movement and and labor movement formation is like is is increasingly, I think, possible and critical, though I do think we need to think about what are some of the shortcomings of the labor movement and the ways in which People who are not working in consolidated industries have not been able to benefit from labor unions and how we can think about different ways in which tenant unions can provide, you know, that same sort of solidarity and collective activity and dignity at home to people who have small landlords. We don't really want to only think about tenant organizing for people who live in buildings that are owned by corporate landlords or even mid-sized landlords. This is really critical that... um, the power relationships between tenants and landlords period are bad and we need to have some formation that is capable of addressing that everywhere that it exists. Yeah, I mean, everyone has already said quite a a bit of the stuff that I would have said. I would add a couple of things. Number one is that I think there's been a, I would say, I think a methodologically interesting, but practically useless debate on the left for, you know, 40, 50 years around, you know, housing tenure and class, basically, right? On the question of, for example, is, a, you know, a tenant, essentially the working class, or if you're a homeowner, are you not, or you are you no longer the, the, the working class? I think that kind of debate around, you know, what homeownership is in relation to class while again, I think interesting in some capacity is not necessarily one that one can organize around or one that is frankly fairly that interesting or practical for organizing. So I I think that in a way we have to start from a practical definition of what the the tenant is and what tenants as as a mass are. And to me, they are coterminous, even if analytically they are different, you know, very different categories of of analysis. And so when we talk about, you know, organizing tenants, in my head, I think about us actually organizing the working class where they are, right? Um, I think Sia has has very uh, eloquently, I think, talked already about the, the differences or the shift in work and and in how um, labor unions have to organize workers at, at the, the site of struggle, that 
too, has shifted with respect to one's community, right? It has shifted uh, into not just the community at large, but also even how one relates to to one's housing uh, has shifted over time. So I think that, that those are things I think that we always have to be very um, keen and clear-eyed about. And in terms of just generally the, the you know, when we, you know, how we organize uh, tenants, I do also think that for folks who are organizing, let's say the undocumented, folks who are organizing uh, people of color, that struggle also shifts with with housing, right? There are obviously these issues around uh, one's documented status at, at work as well, very clearly so. And of course, as we all know, very you know famously, the AFL-CIO and labor unions for a long time wrestled with uh, the, the notion of the undocumented as members of the working class who were deserving of being organized, right, into these spaces. I think tenant organizing has always been much more uh, accepting of those realities, right, of, of what the working poor actually looks like on the ground. Final thing I'd add is that I think what, what is interesting about uh, the, the struggle around tenants' rights right now is that while tenants are a minority of the population of this country, it is also a growing share of the population. It has mostly been concentrated in our major cities, even though that is, again, shifting. And in major states like uh, you know New York and, and California, the larger states, uh, possibly even in places like Texas, that, that share of, of tenants vis-a-vis -vis homeowners is shifting in the direction of, of tenants. And that, though, is not entirely being reproduced in, in other states where homeowners are overwhelmingly the largest share, both of the general population, but also, we should frankly state it, also of the working class, right? Uh, and so I think being cognizant, very, I think, aware about those differences, I think, matters. We should couch it in a broader analysis of what cities, the role that our cities play uh, in capitalism in the 21st century and how that is only shifting with time. Uh, I think that the condition of the tenant is something that more and more Americans and more and more American working class folks, frankly, in the developed world generally, are going to have to confront, right, in, in the next, I would say, 20 to 30 years. This is something that is only going to become um, a condition and experience that more and more folks outside of our major cities uh, experience as well. Renee, you bring up some important points. Most of you are organizing in big American cities, or maybe all of you on this call, California and New York. But of course, tenant unions are also sprouting up in smaller, medium-sized American cities, Omaha, Phoenix, Kansas City, here in Providence, Rhode Island, or Rhode Island generally. But it does seem like tenant organizing and tenant unions are most common in places that are denser and where there's a larger cross-section of the working class renting rather than homeowning. So excluding people saddled with long-term mortgages, I think, and I think, Tracy, you cited this, it's about 35% of the country that that rents. And obviously, we can't speak to what the conditions are everywhere in the country amongst just with the four, five of us here. But, but I'm curious what you all think or have observed about the geographical variations or patterns in the tenant movement across the United States. How, how does it differ or vary from place to place in terms of the nature of who the tenants are, what, what protections are on offer, and simply who is a tenant and what, to what extent does tenancy coincide with the broader condition of the working class in in whatever place and and then just what does what do all of those factors and the geographic variation at play what does that all mean for for the viability and role 
of tenant organizing as, as, as a sort of national project for, for the American left. So we are talking with tenant unions all over the state. Um, so I'm in New York City right now, but I have spent a lot of time supporting and developing tenant unions in places like Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse and Ithaca, which are majority renter cities, but where homeownership still feels like it's affordable or where people would think that homeownership might be affordable. And a couple things I just want to say about these cities, they're at the, these are like post-industrial sort of manufacturing centers, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, um, that have a lot more in common with the Midwest than they do with New York City in general, in terms of like what the cities are like. And, and the decline in manufacturing jobs combined with like a rise in like sort of university type jobs, but also a lot of like adjunct labor or temporary jobs at universities has basically meant that like the cities are both relying on real estate gentrification to like propel their economy in a way that uh, wasn't true historically. And people are working in really precarious jobs in these places if, um, if they are employed. And so that's me that's like created actually pretty strong conditions for tenant union organizing in places like Rochester where I'm from and the Rochester Citywide Tenant Union has had a huge amount of success coming out of the foreclosure crisis at building a really robust tenant union that is fighting slumlords and fighting for stronger tenant protections at the city level and the state level in in a place like Rochester which it which looks more like most American cities than New York City does. I actually think that the conditions for tenant union organizing outside of New York City and LA and San Francisco and, and the Bay Area are really exciting and I think some of the most creative tenant organizing is happening in those places in part because the protections are so much legally less. I found in New York City People really rely on the existing framework of rent control, and it has like created a huge amount of tenant power and the conditions for organizing. But also, you know, organizers are super creative in other places at ways in which they are confronting landlords, building tenant unions, building, you know, community organizations that are fighting for protections and in condition in, in 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 places where they don't really exist even right now. So those are some of like the fiercest and most creative organizers that I've been happy to work with. Um and I think the economic conditions are there in those cities as well as they become more majority renter and wages are not going up. People are not becoming homeowners in Rochester. So I do think that there's opportunity everywhere. Yeah, I'll add to that. Well first of all, Sia, thank you for acknowledging just like Western New York versus New York City. Uh, I'm from Western Pennsylvania and I always have to explain that Pittsburgh and Erie are not the East Coast, but they have similar sort of uh, backgrounds. I grew up in Pittsburgh um, as you know former manufacturing hubs. but uh, one thing that struck me when you were talking about those cities is that you know the whole there was this whole paradigm of creative class redevelopment and so all of these cities, even you know, even smaller, mid-sized American cities, not the big, you know, SF, LA, New York, 
you still have seen over the last couple of decades, especially this sort of race to the bottom for, you know, where um, there's all these tax breaks to attract capital. You know, there's all these attempts at revitalization and there's always gentrification, displacement, you know, urban renewal 2.0 that comes with that. And so that's where, you know, the sort of terrain of struggle is a lot richer than just what's happening, you know, in these sort of more heavily renter uh, cities like San Francisco or, or L.A. or New York. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, seeing that in California in particular, where the frontier of tenant union organizing is right now in California, which alone has 40 million people in it. Yes, what we're seeing in Fresno or what we're seeing in the Inland Empire or the Central Valley, for example, where there are a lot of farm workers it, it and, and has a very different politics. It is very different um, from what we might be seeing um, in, you know, that our members are working on in Oakland or Berkeley or um, or L.A. But, you know, I think that is where a lot of exciting things are happening and particularly broadening, not just broadening traditional tenant organizing to struggles over land, which I think that that's actually a, a unifying factor um, because the struggle, the struggle over land, whether you're, you know, organizing rurally, whether you're organizing in a, um, you know, coastal metropolis or any sort of city in between. Um, I think that, I think that that is particularly one frontier that that uh, of organizing that's really really broadened and I think can be applied is being applied really broadly because it's I mean we all live on land for now unless you're Peter Thiel. Law 2 was really essential to the formation of the Autonomous Tenant Union Network and this is a national network of autonomous unions who are getting together regularly to share strategies. Um, and we had our first in-person convention um, in Los Angeles in June. And I think, you know, the experience of hearing from Omaha, from Sacramento, um, I mean, I think what you recognize is both, like as, as you both were saying, the kind of script of gentrification and then you know, like slumification or the, the, that script of investment and disinvestment as the dual process that we're seeing, right? Like the spatial fix for capital is a global project, right? So we see it everywhere. But then when we think of like, what's the strategies that people are using in smaller communities under the context of abandonment, you know, it's like one of the focuses of the convention I'm thinking about was how to organize in single family homes when you're, you don't share a same, the same landlord as someone else. And so for us thinking about how that like territorial imperative of organizing, right? Like producing a kind of communal life of a dig of the dignity of tenants um, on your block, like as a community that like can the, your block are the people who are going to rise to defend you from your landlord, um, from an absentee landlord. So I feel like situating like these tactics that are, that we also use here, right? Like we base our struggles in our local chapters at, um, you know, like in LA, we're lucky enough to have backyards. So we're, or alleys or front yards or front steps. So we're like situating um, meetings like at these places. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking also, you know, to prepare for today, I was reading our, um, the the Los Angeles Tenant Union does an annual naming the moment process, which is like a broad 
popular education process um, to reflect on our work every year. And one of the things that they did in 2022 was name the strategy of reclaiming space. So I'm, I, I feel like what, you know, what I'm seeing in a lot of unions across the country is alighting on these similar strategies of how do you build community even in a like in a disinvested place in an overinvested place and that those strategies are actually the same and we have so much to learn from each other. Renee? Yeah, just to add to uh, all of that, I think actually Tracy in some ways covered some of the stuff that I really wanted to to you know, land on. But I'm I'm also thinking about the Atun convention uh, this past summer, because not only did we, I think, discuss the differences in, um, you know, kind of organizing, like you said, the differences between organizing single family home tenants, as opposed to those in apartment complexes, and in, in a place like LA, and, and certainly New York, organizing around multifamily homes is very much the, the sine qua non of, of tenant organizing in a lot of ways, right? It's the ease, it's not the easy, it's the, it's the necessary component or vessel, right, for our organizing efforts, because you have a lot of people in one place, right? And organizing across portfolios of single family homes has always been very difficult, right? And, and you know, for some of us who were around in 2008, 2009, we definitely remember what that looked like, right? And the difficulty of organizing people who were losing their single family homes across the country. In terms of the, the folks that we're organizing, that also shifts, right? You know, I one of our uh, key organizers in LA um, at the LA Tenants Union. I remember him mentioning at the Atun convention that the preponderance of Latinos of Hispanic tenants in LA. It's such an overwhelming number of the the folks who uh, rent in the city. That alone also like shifts. You know, the, the 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 demographic composition of renters has an effect in how we reach out to, how we you know contact and connect with our our tenants. Right? We should always be recognizing how those kind of cultural differences um, also have an effect in how we organize. So many of the Latinos who you know we organize in LA are folks who used to organize back home. And by back home, I mean back in their in their home countries, where some folks have been dispossessed because of things like warfare, right? Uh, and I mean, very large proportions of the Hispanic population in Los Angeles have have moved here, moved here because of fairly recent, you know, conflicts in places like Central America, right? And so that kind of difference, that also that historical memory, right, that people bring to to their lives in our in our major urban centers might be different right to the experience of of the folks that you might organize in smaller rural areas and smaller suburban areas of other parts of the country right in terms of the terrain in other ways i think sia kind of touched on this a little bit on new york but that we can write this a little bit larger tenants rights don't exist in large parts of the country in our renter heavy cities yes there are tenants rights to some extent um, to a greater or lesser extent, right, depending on what jurisdiction you go to. But you go to places, again, like Omaha, if you go to places uh, like Nebraska, wherever it, it is that you go in other parts of the country. Rhode Island. And Rhode Island, you're going to find that tenants have no uh, tenants' rights really to speak of. And that does have a fundamental 
a shift or, or it causes a shift in how you have to organize because it means that the, the kind of protections that we can rely on in on the West Coast and New York to be able to ensure that tenants aren't being pushed out automatically or immediately just because they're organizing and talking to their neighbors, that's a reality that we have to be sensitive to, right? We can't just say to people that all tenants can take the same types of risks in different places because they don't have the same types of protections that can allow them to take those risks, right? So that's something that I think is important for us to remember. I know that Shanti is also, and, and others have already talked a little bit about, or, or Tracy, I think you started describing what I like to sometimes uh, call or, or to think about as like essentially the combined and uneven, you know, real estate development that marks the process of gentrification, right? I, I know so many of the folks I've worked with over my life in both organizations I've worked in and organizations I've, you know, volunteer organized in. You know, that, that question that haunts us, what's going to happen when our cities lose their communities of color, when they become less working class, you know, cities, not to pick on you, Shanti, but what they become a little bit more like San Francisco than they do or, or are like Los Angeles, which is still very much a kind of logistical hub, a manufacturing and textiles hub, right? at the national level. I think these are questions that I think we do constantly wrestle with. We have to push ourselves into thinking if we can no longer organize the you know, tenant working class in a place like Los Angeles, what are we going to do to organize them in places like San Bernardino, right? I think these are issues that that do you know keep us up at night, at least it does for me. And the final thing I'd say, I think, to the question of what does it look like to organize that 35% of the population at the national level? To me, there's a very clear parallel, frankly, to the industrial proletariat. And I mean that in the sense that, you know, so much of the writing in Marxist literature, right, about, or in Marxist literature about, you know, organizing the working class, I think sometimes elides the fact that the industrial working class has at various points in time, in fact, for most of its history, has not been the majority of the population of the countries of the developed world. Right. And yet when you read. And it definitely wasn't in Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And yet you read the literature and oftentimes it makes it sound as though it were. I think that that question of the role of a of a minority that is so central to, uh, you know, capitalist accumulation in land or this as the spatial fix, as, as Tracy kind of described it, that that is does play a very important and I think growing role in how capitalism is able to recycle uh, surplus, right, uh, value. In, and, in, and for that reason, we do have to take seriously the fact that this, yes, minority of the American population is also playing or is at is living at the 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 thin edge of the wedge, basically, of capitalist uh, dynamics on, on a global scale. Because ultimately, the houses that we live in are being bought up by money that is coming in, it's being hoovered up from all across the, the, the world. I think these are dynamics that matter. And I, when we think about who are the folks that we're organizing in our cities, ultimately, we are organizing people who are experiencing kind of that double whammy between, you know, uh, precarity at work, but also increasingly precarity, precarity in their homes. Sometimes you hear on the left that tenants and tenant organizing doesn't have the same possible sort of leverage that organizing workers on the shop floor does. What's, what's your case for the strategic viability and importance of this work? And why do you think it sometimes attracts some doubts. And and to put my cards on the table, I'm a tenant organizer, so obviously I do strongly believe in tenant organizing. But 
I do, from my experience, think that there are ways in which it does seem sometimes harder to form a tenant union that, say, covers the entirety of a single landlord in Rhode Island, the same way that a union can represent the entirety of a boss's workers in the state, and that there are maybe also ways in which tenant organizing, while while critical, doesn't seem, and this is from my perspective in Rhode Island, have the same potential leverage as workers at the point of production. But maybe that's just under present conditions and under local conditions, and maybe what I'm experiencing is more contingent. I think that Tracy put it well when she talked about the sort of collective potential of being able to control your block, whether or not you have different landlords on that block. So when you try to think about the potential of tenant organizing as like going after one company or organizing a portfolio of landlords, it can seem sort of insurmountable and hard. And then a lot of tensions come up around like property ownership and working class homeowners and how they engage with tenant organizing and what does it mean when some sectors of the working class have all of their wealth in land. And so, or like any potential for wealth in land. And, and even if even if they don't, even if we know that people are sort of saddled with a mortgage and not truly in control of their homes, I do think that there is like, there is like a sort of like homeowner identity that is like really intrinsic to how people think about capitalism in America that we have to like overcome. And, you know, I think the, the work to sort of build a tenant identity is good. So when you think about it at sort of that scale, it can feel overwhelming, but I still think it's like so incredibly strategic. And and the reason why is that one, I think sort of like land and land ownership is sort of central to the understanding of American capitalism and how wealth is accumulated in this country in particular. So that's like the first. And the second thing is, is that real estate is overwhelmingly just more and more at the heart of every single major industry in this country. So like the major landlords is also the major employer. And I don't mean that at the level of like a private equity company owns housing and owns like a company. That's not what I mean. I mean like but like a, a university. I mean New York University owns tons of rental housing in the in lower Manhattan, actually all over the city, and also is a major employer of precarious workers. And cities like that is true in many, many, many cities, not just New York, where a university or a hospital has become both like the major landlord, the major employer for the entire town. And so organizing tenants at the same time as you're organizing workers or organizing tenants together with workers feels just so incredibly important. And then like every major employer, their real their 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 wealth, you know, their endowment is invested in the real estate market. And so that's just sort of something else we have to figure out as well. And so sort of figuring out ways that tenants are strategic interrupters of capitalist accumulation is very, very important, though I agree that it's not happening in the same way as you're organizing everyone who works in a General Motors factory. It's not going to look like that. It's going to look different, but tenants still have this like core economic role and we're experimenting and figuring out how to make it happen. I really resonate with a lot of what you said, Sia. And I mean, for me, I feel like I mean, it's just important to name that a lot of the resistance to the strategic capacity of tenants is sexism, right? And like we in LATU have made a very specific effort to, in our strategy, name our movement as a women's movement. And like what that means for me as a 
queer person, like what that means for the men in our movement, like that's something else, like, you know, but it is a women's movement because women are tasked with the care of the home. And that is the site of struggle that is that is being organized. And so I think it's just really important that we name that. At the same time, we can name like, like I'm thinking about all of the things that are like obstacles to our organizing that are also like some of the immense strengths of the tenant movement. Like the tenant movement is a catch-all for like all of the crises of our time. Like if you think about the crime panic and the way that people are, um, when you're organizing tenants, one of the things that you have to face is people's like animosity to unhoused people in their buildings, in their presence. You think about package theft. And so like if, you know, like if you want a basis for an abolitionist practice, the tenant movement is that place. We can organize safety in our buildings like by restoring the communal life of buildings, restoring the communal life of our blocks. I mean, the one of the progenitors of law to is Union de Vecinos. My mentor, Leonardo Vilches, tells a story of, you know, how organizing the neighbors on blocks was the production of community safety against gangs and simultaneously against the police. And then I, I think too, like right now in New York, um, one of the tensions that's coming up is you know, an under, like frankly understandable anti-Semitism in black communities that comes from having decades of Jewish landlords, right? So like, this is a terrain of struggle. So, uh, similarly in, you know, like a, a crisis of care work where so many people are having to do the labor of a second or third full-time shift in caring for people in their homes. And so like the work of the tenant movement is I think that can, you know, be abolitionist, anti-racist, feminist. It's like all of these things that we like might name in the abstract as goals. It's like, well, this is the material that we work with when we think about neighborliness as a political and material force. And and I think that for me, like a alongside thinking about its strategic capacity and um, I, I think we also have to think about that. Like, I mean, I will say too, right? Like. I was thinking about the UC strike and that the capacity for rent burdens to both animate that strike, their demand to, you know, put COLA in their contract was a strategy about leveraging the UC system, which is a supposedly public university, which has $4 billion invested in Blackstone right now. And so I think that like that is one shape of the tenant movement right now is these strategic point of leverage as well as the kind of daily work of some of the most difficult um, tasks of our time. Renee? I, I think when, when people, I, I'm going to kind of go a little bit hard, a little bit on some of my comrades, right, in the broader socialist movement here to say when people question the quote unquote strategic viability of organizing tenants, as though it weren't something that is quite literally happening already. I just think to myself, what, you know, what, where, what's the, what's the point really? What's the value in doing that when your comrades are actually already organizing renters and their hundreds and their thousands, right? Um, and in fact, I do look at the experience of uh, what has happened in the LA Tenants Union 
as very kind of edifying to that to that extent. And and I I say this especially because we recently had our annual assembly that was one of the most beautiful gatherings I've ever been to that had so much of our working class base uh, uh, present. There were so many people in that room. I was so shocked, in fact, by how successful it had been. It really kind of put to shame, frankly, that question that people will often have about what the value of organizing tenants um, where they live is. So I, yeah, I just, in a way, kind of, I, I'm allergic to that question a little bit because this is something that is happening as we speak. It does, though, speak to structural difficulties or differences, right, between organizing labor and organizing tenants in their respective sites of struggle. Uh, there is no Wagner Act for organizing tenants, although there have been efforts and and some legislation passed to enable uh, tenant organizing to happen. And I know folks in New York in New York have actually thought about a little bit more, right, what that that right to organize looks like. But there is no Wagner Act. It means that we do, as as Tracy and, and Sia have both said, it doesn't mean we have to organize at the block level. We have to organize. It's a very gritty and difficult uh, effort to have to organize people at the worm's eye level. And in fact, an uncomfortable effort because you have to organize the people that you live with, right? That is a, a very viscerally different sort of process, I would say to organizing folks at work where you, again, have been alienated from each other and, you know, you were forced to be in this kind of alien space to be able to, to you know, feed yourself, to provide for um, your your family, your household, etc., right? That is a very different thing. But I think there's also, frankly, another tendency in the left that I think we have to knock back in kind of proposing or asking that question, which is a lot of leftists... A lot of armchair leftist generals always like to talk at the macro level and don't want to have to think about what happens or how what happens at the micro level, what happens at the at the block by block or building level, what happens on the individual side of struggle is what creates the conditions, what shapes, what frames what the macro conditions of the working class look like. Or to put it differently, for us, organizing tenants on the ground level is what is at precisely the thing that shifts the conditions of the working class writ large in, again, they're, they're at the side of struggle for work. When it, when it comes to even kind of political rights, what we can, we'll call like civil rights, right? broadly speaking. So I just think that it there is that tendency to always want to talk in these kind of broad strokes, world historical levels, uh, and not have to engage in the kind of the frankly, the dirty work of organizing on the ground level. I think that is what motivates, I think, oftentimes a lot of that skepticism. I do want to also uh, point out you know, on the question of private equity. Tracy's already talked about how the University of California, like in New York, is both a landowner and a quote unquote provider of, you know, of educational services, as well as a gigantic boss at the state level in places like California, right? Labor unions themselves are cottoning on to the importance of organizing the, you know, tenants of private equity landlords because they know, again, ultimately they are fighting the same sort of multi-headed hydra, right? Really? That's ha that's happening? Labor unions? Uh, yeah, shockingly it is, yes. I mean, here, no, yeah, in Fantastic. California, I've had conversations with folks at Unite Here Local 11, for example. I know SEIU, multiple SEIU locals very much recognize that the the there is an imperative, right, 
to to link up with with to to work with uh, tenants unions tenant organizations organizations that work with tenants period they understand that that is a complementary a vital second uh, role that they have to play even if they themselves are not the folks who are organizing the tenants right and so with unite here for example they have reached out multiple times in various capacities to try to see if we can work together to organize against particular private equity targets to me that is a recognition that no one can escape a kind of at this point ineluctable process that is increasingly capturing more and more of our neighborhoods and also influencing more and more of our workplaces i think that is a recognition that more and more labor unions themselves will will come to uh with time yeah i mean that that's incredibly news to hear. And I mean, just this morning, I was communicating with someone from the National Education Association in Rhode Island because one of their members, uh, who's she's a custodian, is also a tenant leader of ours who's facing a retaliatory termination of, of, of her lease. And so we're extremely interested in pursuing collaboration with, with organized labor in Rhode Island. Um, Shanti. I was, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say too, I mean, now that I'm, I was, Renee made me sort of reminisce about even just being a baby organizer in San Francisco and how um, how labor unions are still are increasingly involved in state level and local um, housing justice work in, in California. And that's always been my experience. It's great to see it more. Renee took one of my main points, which was that uh, there is like, as he as he recognized, there is no right to organize for tenants. So to go back to your your, your question, Dan, like that, that there's a lot of organizing that could be happening in tenant organizing that maybe is being chilled by the fact that, you know, there is not really in most places a, any kind of framework to prevent that exact kind of retaliation. Right. So there is that, there is that chilling effect there. I think we have to keep that in mind, even, you know, I'm not saying, obviously it's not, sunshine and roses for the labor movement right now or in, in terms what? in terms of in in terms of the strength of their uh right to organize but in most places when it comes to tenant organizing you know we have none at all um so you know renee renee touched on that point but if i can be you know if if there is also i think a, a global macro level argument for tenant organizing in america specifically uh or tenant organizing in the imperial core um, which is that it's the sort of US UK model of hooking every tenant up or hooking every member of your society up to the international financial market for real estate speculation that's being that that model is being exported aggressively and has been for a couple decades now especially post 2008 to you know the rapidly urbanizing global south Right. It's a huge that the real estate financialization is a huge component of sort of, you know, this paradigm of international development. So if as socialists we are fighting an international struggle against capital, we have to look particularly in America as to how, you know, our systems, our financial behemoths, our our struggles are essentially in a, in a bad way, really being exported to the rest of the world where the fastest growing cities in the world are. They're predominantly in the global south. So if we're going to have an international struggle and against capital, which I think I think most of my comrades in the movement think that we need to have, then I do think there is a role, uh, a pretty strong role for, for tenant organizing in, um, in the imperial core to, <laughs> um, to, to influence that and talk about that because, you know, I mean, this is something that revisiting um, 
uh, Urban Warfare, a fantastic book by Raquel Rolnick, who used to be the um, UN Special Rapporteur on Housing, you know, she talks about this idea of mortgaged lives, right? Um, and, and it's, you know, she's taking a global view, obviously, given her job on housing insecurity, on urbanization, on tenancy in general. But, you know, it is it is a very she makes a very convincing argument. And I I, I agree with this. I mean, real estate financialization is the global model now, and it's being modeled after in a bad way after everything, the, 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 the messed upness of the U.S., to use a scientific term. So <laughs> do you mind if I add one Go more ahead. thing? No, please. Yeah, I mean, Go it's, ahead. it's just because if we're thinking, I, I was really interested in the UC strike specifically as a tenant organizer, right? And I, I wrote about it for the New Republic and what I found, which really on the one hand surprised me, but on the other hand confirmed something that I was maybe suspicious of is that in many ways, the that strike was inspired by a group of failed tenant organizers in Santa Cruz. They set out to organize for rent control and failed. They set out to organize the tenants of UC like as a landlord and failed. And then they directed themselves to their employer because they could not afford rent. So they you they leveraged the idea of a rent burden to say like well we should be able to live afford to live where we work and therefore we shouldn't live with rent burden and by you know like their wildcat strike i think is like everyone across the union credits that concept and that effort with you know the mass effort that we saw and then i mean i have to say like um it seems to me and what i've heard that it that demand for cola that was very quickly shut down by what seemed like UAW leadership. And so I I think that there is like the idea of the tenant movement becoming a part of the labor movement, right? That like we are addressed like that the worker, the grad workers of UC were addressing themselves to their employer in order to constrain the UC's capacity to raise rents for everyone in California. And I I feel like that made their struggle, like their struggle had the potential to affect tenants across the state. Um, And and I think that that is really, um, you know, I, I think we saw both that was a moment where the potential of those connections really erupted. Um, we didn't see it happen, but they did build like an incredible amount of infrastructure for what will happen next time. And of course, like right after the strike, the UC announced a $4.5 billion investment in Blackstone. So we are, I feel like these kinds of connections are really like going to be part of the, really have to be part of the tenant movement going forward. I'll, I just want to add really quickly that uh, since you brought up, since people have talked about the UC Blackstone investment, um, it was interesting too, at the same time that they chose to invest, that UC chose to invest in Blackstone. Blackstone is saying on its investor calls that part of the insane returns that they're promising, they're promising UC, for example, an 11% return, which is pretty high. But uh, on their investor calls, they're, uh, they're telling their investors in the Blackstone REIT, right? The Real Estate Investment Trust that part of how they're going to realize these astronomical promised returns is to jack up rents on student housing, on their portfolio of student housing. So there was a real snake eating itself element of the of that the last couple of weeks. 
well, and generally also increase evictions right across the board. So yeah, these these things are intimately linked. I think all of us could spend an hour just talking about how these uh, these folks are basically, you know, attacking from both ends, basically. Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Afterlife, a collective history of loss and redemption in pandemic America, edited by Ray Lynn Barnes, Carrie Lee Merritt, and Yohuru Williams. Afterlife is a collective history of how Americans experienced, navigated, commemorated, and ignored mass death and loss during the global COVID-19 pandemic, mass uprisings for racial justice, and the January 6th insurrection. Inspired by the writers who documented American life for the Works Progress Administration, the editors asked contemporary historians and legal experts to focus on the parallels, convergences, and differences between the exceptional long 2020 and earlier eras in U.S. history. As Sarah Jaffe puts it, in this moment, when plague reality continues to underscore how undercared for we all are, Reading Afterlife has been a bomb. Afterlife, out now from Haymarket Books, and available on haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. To talk more about the nuts and bolts of this work, at Reclaim Rhode Island, we're organizing tenants of this slumlord pioneer investments. It's a medium-sized, I think would be the correct term, landlord with 60-odd multifamily properties across multiple cities and towns in the state. So maybe 200-plus units, we're not entirely sure. And then some unknown, we think smaller number, um, we haven't fully researched, across the state line in Massachusetts. And we're knocking all of the doors in Rhode Island. We're forming city and town-level hubs. Is what we're doing in terms of trying to organize an entire slumlord portfolio of of small multifamily buildings spread out across the state in the way they are. Is that unusual? Do do most tenant organizing campaigns target particular landlords or more just particular larger buildings or or, or is it sometimes more, and I think you all have referred to this a few times, across a neighborhood where where people have have different landlords entirely? What what's the sort of array of sorts of organizing that you're either involved in or have heard of? And what sort of what are the implications of of the differences between those approaches? I think that the conditions of struggle are going to determine the type of organizing that you do, right? In a place like Rhode Island, you know that is a it's a smaller place. It uh, you know a lot of the communities that you are organizing are going to look fundamentally radically different to what they would look like in New York and L.A. That is going to have a a marked uh, differentiation, or it's, or it's going to have a marked impact on what the organizing is going to look like. I think there's a lot of value in in starting off with a portfolio wide 
organizing effort because it also provides for the possibility of doing the neighborhood level organizing that you're going to need to do later on as well, except you're going to do it with pre-existing infrastructure, right? And pre-existing organizing efforts that can be the seed or the foundation for organizing other renters who might have, yes, different scale landlords, but who are going to be facing a lot of the same conditions. I don't think I need to, you know, belabor the point that Shanti, Sia, and, and Tracy will know about well, that when you put any tenant in, in a room together, any series of tenants in a room together, they can have a private equity landlord, they can have a, a tiny slumlord who owns a duplex only, and a landlord that kind of falls somewhere in between, and their conditions, their experiences are going to be shared. It is so fundamental, in fact, to the popular education model within the LA Tenants Union that we start with that you know, very basic experience of tenancy and and what how that experience is shared across these different um, households, these different parts of a city, right? And so you're going to find the problems with habitability. You're going to find the the problems with unjust rent increases. You're going to find the problems of landlord harassment. All of these things are things that are going to be able to unite those folks together. So ultimately, to me, the question of how you begin, you know, organizing something like a tenant union, I think has to depend on, you know, who are the, the what is the ragtag army of organizers that you've cobbled together to want to come together and achieve a th- this project? And then also, what are the, the conditions of the folks that you're organizing? What do they, how does that lead you down a, a, a different sort of, you know, organizing path? When I think of, at least in my experience, when I've organized tenants and organized rent strikes, they have oftentimes started as organizing one building that then have quickly become trying to organize a portfolio the moment it became obvious that one, that same landlord maintained their buildings in the exact same conditions with horrible rent increases on top of that in other buildings and other parts of the city. And also when it became obvious that the landlord could absorb a, a, a you know a, a large enough rent strike on their own because they had enough wealth, they had enough income also flowing in from different um, properties within that portfolio. Suddenly, there is a strategic decision that we had to take to be able to target those other buildings that the landlord had. That is, I think, I guess all of that is to counsel that you start with the the struggle that you have in front of you at any given point in time. You're going to have to start with where the tenants themselves are and the landlord they are confronting. That is going to open up the doors for or is going to really decide for you what is going to be the right kind of organizing choice after that. I will say, though, one final thing here is that organizing in a city like L.A. and I'm sure like New York and other large cities does you know, contour or or frame the organizing effort a little bit differently because you also have different types of of landlords at different scale, perhaps, than you would get in smaller uh, communities. That means that you are going to be confronting these landlords who you will not be able to potentially you know, I don't know, you're not going to risk their their entire profitability by by leading, you know, a small number of units or a small number of buildings even onto rent strike. You're not going to threaten that viability as, as, a, as a business in the same way um, than you would if you were just dealing with a smaller, you know, quote unquote, mom and pop landlord. That means that you have to adopt different tactics to be able to respond to that. And so again, there is no, there in the same way that there are no shortcuts, there are also no guidebooks for how you organize this stuff. I think it starts with who do you have in front of you who can do the organizing and who are the tenants that you're, you're you know, organizing first. I, 
I also just to build on what you said, Renee, I feel like from like a from Latu's perspective, I feel like you know, our local chapters are autonomous, which means that we don't have a standard methodology for organizing and our local chapters look vastly different from one another. Like East Hollywood is really focused around direct action. Like as soon as there is a um, organized building and repair needs, they are going to the landlord's house with, an, with eviction notices for the landlord. Our East Side local Union de Vecinos is really built around block associations and producing the kind of community in like and, and taking over space, doing community events, cleaning streets, putting in guerrilla crosswalks, like taking over the life of the city. The Northeast local is, you know, formed around convert like really based around conversations about like, what is, what are you going through? What strategies are you using? And, you know, we, we have like a K3 tenant council, which is organizing buildings across one portfolio. But I, I also think that, you know, like one of these things that we're learning as a union is that if you, you know, that these are really different kinds of organizing cultures. There's not one that's necessarily going to be the right one. But if it, it like, when we see something that what works is a local chapter that is, you know, growing and that people take ownership over. And, and I think that there's a lot of different methods to get there. And I think that that's one of the more exciting things about about the Los Angeles Tenant Union, given that we're dues funded and that we're all volunteer, is that these the capacity for different cultures to emerge is like where it's it's really a space where many different kinds of cultures can emerge and many different kinds of strategies can emerge. And then it's our job to sort of corral them to teach each other to use the union as an archive of like everything that we've done and and teach each other what to do next. Sia? I really agree with that. I think the most important thing is how you are supporting tenants in, you know, developing how, how tenant organizers are developing capacity at the building or the block level of tenants themselves to directly take on the work of the organizing campaign and continually growing the base and growing the base of leaders who are going to drive the work forward. That's the most important thing. And we are not big enough as a housing movement to avoid any hot chops. So like if I were to give you any advice, I would say just because if someone comes to you and wants to organize, but they don't live in the in the buildings owned by Pioneer Investments, you shouldn't say, well, they don't have a role. I think like our goal as organizers is to um, create, yeah, tons of different organizing cultures, depending on the moment, onboard people into the work frequently and often and give them the capacity and the power to to continually grow the movement. Um, we need a diversity of tactics and a diversity of strategies. The one that hasn't come up that we have experimented with in the past and we are not experimenting with so much right now is organizing against landlords that are in a particular lender's portfolio. Even if the um, the landlord is maybe different, they all have the same mortgager. A lot of the times we've found that certain rent terms can be written into a mortgage or promised to investors. And so there's a way in which you can exert pressure over a landlord. They're going after a bank and you can build um, a larger sort of 
a consolidated target by going after a particular lender um, at the same time as you're going after a landlord. And, and all of these are just like different ways to sort of identify targets and create pressure. The last thing I would just say about sort of like portfolio side organizing, I organized with the Crown Heights Tenant Union for many years. Um, and we started the Crown Heights Tenant Union organizing multifamily buildings in foreclosure. And the goal was to support renters in using this moment while the buildings are in foreclosure to build tenant unions in the neighborhood and interrupt the sort of really brutal gentrification that was that was sweeping through Crown Heights at the time. So we brought together tenants who were trying to like fight for decent living conditions at the building level after landlords had effectively walked away and to win sort of control and dignity as those buildings went through the process of, of foreclosure. The buildings are all flipped to new private equity companies and we made a lot of progress in getting one of the corporate landlords who bought all of these buildings in Crown Heights to sort of like sign an agreement with the tenants um, around, you know, five-year lease terms and a bunch of other things like that, that that the tenants had wanted. And then as soon as, you know, we came to this meeting, tenants negotiated with the landlord, it was amazing. And then like the next thing that happened is the landlord flipped the building. And so that happens like, and then you're like back at square one. So I think this like emphasis on leadership development and capacity building of the union to be able to continually be organizing and exerting um, their own power is so critical in a world where real estate speculation means that landlords are just constantly flipping buildings. Whenever we start to get traction at a building level, we see the landlord try to sell it. And at the same time, we have found that it is much harder for landlords to sell buildings when the tenants are on a visible rent strike. So I don't know, organizing is a way to interrupt the value of the building as it gets bought and sold. And so really thinking about how preventing landlords from buying and selling buildings by targeting the people who they owe money to is something else that you can bring into this. But strongly agree that all styles and cultures need to be nurtured and recognized and welcomed if we're going to build any type of tenant power that at the scale we need to win. Shanti? Yeah, I think um, I think between Sia, Tracy and Renee, they've got most of this covered already. But I will just add to that. I mean, I, I kind of tend to take the approach right now that there are no no wrong answers here when people I, I'm always astonished, um, particularly like working at a coalition where our members, you know, some of these are building size tenant unions. Some of these are citywide tenant unions. Some of them are autonomous tenant unions like the Pasadena Tenants Union and the L.A. Tenants Union. You know, some of them are organizing across a particular landlord portfolio, like the Veritas Tenants Committee here in San Francisco, which is organizing against the biggest corporate landlord in the city and recently went on a successful debt strike. Um, you know, I, I, I hear new ideas from folks, um, you know, particularly because we're not, you know, at, at, at Tenants Together, we're not just a coalition of the tenant unions that exist, but we're also the point is to actually support the formation of new tenant unions and so you know grow the movement that way especially geographically and you know i keep hearing i hear great new ideas from people all the time just last week we were talking to a, a new member organization in orange county who's actually going to be organizing by city council district which is something i hadn't even thought of before because that's that's basically part of their power building strategy so um i yeah i, I guess it's really just about being really open-minded because i i i honestly you know i've been doing this 
myself been a tenant organizer for a quarter of my life and um, pretty much every day I hear a new idea that sounds really great. <laughs> what about public housing tenants? Have any of you organized Section 9 or or project-based Section 8 developments? What What sort of opportunities for power building might exist there and how do those compare to the situation with private landlord tenants? So I think... Yes, I have done organizing in Project Based Section 8 and Section 9 buildings. I want to say one of the things about organizing in NYCHA, in in our New York City Section 9 housing, is that the sort of continual divestment in public housing year after year after year from the federal government has created a huge amount of sort of disillusionment, sort of like lack of belief in organizing maybe. And so that's like a the sort of like sort of disorganization and apathy and apathy is really the wrong word. It's sort of like anger and a lack of belief that like winning is possible is a huge barrier in, um, in, in public housing organizing. And the other sort of interesting factor, both in section project based section eight and section nine housing is that there are like established tenant associations that have some degree, some degree of like, I don't know, they're, they're like, they're in the bureaucracy of, Section 9 and Section 8 housing, that there are these like HUD established TAs that have like a pretty close relationship to the New York political establishment here in New York. And so that's just sort of like another um, another factor that impacts sort of like autonomous tenant union organizing in the building. How are you engaging with the sort of existing TA? Do you want to be running people to take over the existing TA or participate in the existing TA or like, working with the existing TA? So there's like these sort of in- interdynamics. Um, And then I would say that, like, the vast majority of low-income and working-class renters in the United States live in the private rental market and are extremely oppressed and disempowered um, in the private rental market. And so anything that we can do to be strengthening protections of tenants in the private market and building strong tenant unions that can take over their buildings and like exert their vision for their buildings and like bring more control over the sort of private real estate industry, the stronger the possibilities for tenant power building in section nine housing are as well. Because what we really try to do with private market organizing is like sort of eliminate the vast profit difference between the private market housing and the public housing. And so by sort of reducing the speculative value of the of private real estate on one hand and through tenant power building and strengthening the capacity of tenant organizing in section nine and section eight housing, we're sort of just like bringing the whole universe of renters closer together. And right now I think the real estate industry really benefits from how fractured our regulatory framework is. You've got some LIHTC people over here. You've got some rent stabilization over here, section nine, section eight, everyone's got different rules. It's designed to confuse us and disempower us and disempower tenants as like a class of people. So it's really challenging to overcome those distinctions. And and yeah, I think we really do wanna try to figure out how organizing in the private market can be in deep solidarity and strengthen the capacity for organizing within the public housing system as well. Tracy? You know, one of the progenitor struggles to the formation of the Los Angeles Tenant Union was that of the residents of Pico Aliso, which used to be the largest public housing block west of the Mississippi. And it was destroyed under Clinton's Hope Six 
and replaced with, um, in part, with fewer units, first of all, but then privately owned, publicly subsidized, quote unquote, affordable housing. And the struggle of these tenants to was to keep their buildings, that the idea that um, Union de Vecinos was formed because tenants wanted to stay and they did not see the destruction of their communities as the improvement of their communities. Um, and this group that even though they lost this fight, continued to struggle for their communities. And um, the the thing that really brought me into the tenant movement was the boycott of art galleries in Boyle Heights in the early 2010s um, that was led by residents of public housing in the community. These tenants were present at the first meeting of the Los Angeles Tenant Union. Um, and so now one of our fights is in um, Hillside Via in Chinatown, which is a privately owned multifamily. It has 100 and some, uh, 140 units that is both subsidized through LIHTC, um, meaning it's affordable housing, and also the landlord accepts Section 8. Um, and so the tenants in this building realized that their affordability covenant was going to expire. So they are living in the failures of what was presented as the solutions to other of our members, right? They're living in the failure of like democratic policymaking and consensus. And they're, you know, and the landlord himself has said, well, you know, everyone should just get on Section 8 because I get that money like clockwork. Um, and the residents, I, I always quote her, says, you know, like, get on Section 8 is landlord for fuck you. And they're what they are struggling to do right now and have made massive strides considering the horizon is to force the city to purchase the building um, using eminent domain. And what their three year long struggle, which has had to take place in three different languages across two different kinds of legal statuses of housing tenure, right? As Leo was saying, as Sia was saying that this is like a disorganization, this is a disorganization strategy to have tenants in these different legal environments is they've like, they've consensed on the demand that the private owner, it, it is the problem of the private ownership of the building that is going to expel, see them expelled from their long-term communities and their homes. So their demand has been to use eminent domain to take the city, to take the building out of private ownership away from this landlord who is trying to evict them. And they've chosen to remain in solidarity by saying, you know, it's the private ownership of the building that is destroying it. And the, the thing that we want for us is control over our building and, and, stability for ourselves. And so I see these kinds of um, like specifically organizing in Section 8 buildings as a really important site of our struggle because it really illuminates the kind of failure of the consensus solution that we're being given right now. And just to clarify for listeners, LIHTC, our low-income housing tax credits, a complex subsidy system that I won't explain right now, but it's basically replaced both traditional Section 9 public housing, which is what you think about when you hear the word, the words, the projects, or voucher-based or project-based Section 8 forms of public housing, which are already a, a form of privatizing traditional public housing. That has been overwhelmingly displaced by LIHTC over in recent decades as the dominant 
form of affordable housing in the country. And yet these units are only guaranteed to be affordable for, I believe, 15 or 30 years, depending on the situation. Sometimes Depends, it can go yeah. up to 50. Up to 50. 50. 55, yeah. But it's they're the covenanted. It also depends on your, yeah. It also <laughs> depends on your state. Like your LIHTC is 15 years minimum, and then all over the country you're going to have a different framework. It's yeah. also, it. it is the predominant uh, way of financing subsidized housing. But I mean, it's private investor tax credit. Someone is making a profit off of it. It, it is the most, you know, Rube Goldberg method of replacing direct public investment in housing imaginable, right? And it's all, I mean, I would even argue that it's worse than Section 8 because at least vouchers are sort of, I'm not romanticizing Section 8 by any means. Well, it's so interesting because one of the things about all of this is like, and well, LIHTC doesn't even require the housing to be affordable at 30% of the tenant's income. It requires it to be sort of initially income targeted to people at 60% of AMI, area median income. But all of these schemes that sort of, that whatever, it's intentionally confusing and intentionally abstracted and has created an entire cottage industry of affordable housing providers and syndicators and people who invest in the tax credits and da 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 da. So there's like, there are like thousands and thousands of people who like work in the LIHTC industry. It's like a thing and it's bizarre. But one of the things that one of the reasons why tenant union organizing is so important and tenant union organizing and subsidized housing is that when you have your housing being paid for by LIHTC and you have also your housing being paid for by a voucher or something like that, you are sort of tremendously disempowered to fight for things like better living conditions in some way. If you call the city to come inspect your Section 8 rental apartment and the city sees that the landlord hasn't made a repair in two to three years of the roof or whatever, you're going to lose your rental subsidy or be forced to move. There's nowhere for you to go with that rental subsidy. And so there's like this disempowering thing that happens with Section 8 and LIHTC where um, tenants are sort of like interrupted from the economic power of their tenancy um, by the subsidy. And they are unable to, like, go on a rent strike with their neighbors. And so there's lots of ways where, like, a Section 8 voucher, like, creates a division between someone who's paying their rent with a voucher versus someone who is paying their rent um, with, with, their, with, their, with their money. Because it, it doesn't go directly to the tenant. It goes to right, the landlord right. when the tenant fills out the right paperwork. And it, it creates, like, it, it, makes, it makes a tenant organizer's job very hard. Because you're in this, like, shitty situation. You want to organize to win repairs, but you don't want people to lose their housing or their money. And so, you know, this is one of the things that, like, is winnable and changeable, but it's not winnable if people are doing it alone. We have created, like, an affordable housing system that divides us. And we need to create an affordable housing system that's based in, like, tenant power and collective action and not based on, like, these sort of individualized subsidies that don't really help people pay the rent anyway. Renee. I think you also see it very palpably. I think you see the the problem with Section 8 very palpably anytime you go canvas a building that has a mix of tenants, right? So uh, there are so many experiences that I've had uh, trying to go knocking on doors in places like South Central LA where you will get a very marked difference in the response from Section 8 tenants, their ability, their desire to even want to talk to you on the one hand, but also a, a shared sort of suspicion that the non-Section 8 
8 tenants have of those with Section 8 vouchers. They basically will tell you that the Section 8 tenants will oftentimes not talk to you. They won't talk to their neighbors whenever they want to organize around issues of, of habitability. But it comes back down to exactly what CEO was saying, right? If you know, if you fear that you're going to lose your voucher, and I unfortunately know too many folks who are constantly losing their vouchers because of these problems, you're going to be very cautious about what you're going to exercise as a right, um, at, you know, as a tenant, right? And you're going to be very cautious about organizing with your with your neighbors. But going back to a couple of things, like we've been talking a little bit about light tech, we've been talking a little bit about public housing, you know, just on on the kind of affordable housing model period in this country, and, and specifically even in LA, there are thousands of units in the city of LA alone that are essentially about to be essentially de decovented, if you will, right? They're, they are going to lose their, their uh, affordable housing sort of mandate. Uh, again, the struggle around Hillside Villa is really kind of an example of that, but it is one of again, quite literally thousands of, of units in the city that is in a comparable sort of situation. And for cities like LA that are scrambling to try to preserve affordable housing as much as possible, this is going to be the elephant in the room for a lot of these jurisdictions in the next uh, couple of years. Because again, these covenants are expiring in different parts of the, of the city, in different parts of the state. One thing also on the you know, that kind of the the, the Byzantine uh, nature of the bureaucracy around housing. This is a very common aspect of, of the welfare state in this country. Generally speaking, it is a common aspect of any sort of, of, of public intervention in the private market. We saw it with the emergency rental assistance program uh, nationwide, it's very much so here in California, where the process was very difficult, very laborious for tenants to be able to apply to. That was by design. The same thing is uh, is something that we've seen in, in the non-housing world, right, with the student loan debacle from the White House, right, that the debt collective we have a lot of experience with. This idea of having an application, even if it was the simplest application in the world, also ended up being something that has prevented now millions of people from receiving immediate relief on their student loans. We shouldn't be shocked at the fact that throughout the housing market, we basically, you know, it, uh, create these different sorts of conditions. Within the debt collective, you know, we developed for the state of California, this, this process or this, this program called the Tenant Power Toolkit that allows tenants to be able to file an answer to their eviction paperwork uh, at, you know, at any courthouse in the state. But that had to, to build a program like that also meant having to engage the very difficult and fractured nature of the housing uh, market in, in California that had to take into account the legal differences between Section 8 you know, tenant uh, voucher holders and those who, who are living in public housing as well. And on public housing. California doesn't have as much public housing. LA doesn't have as much public housing by quite a, a, a you know, by a country mile as New York. We don't have it because in the 1950s, the, uh, Cal the, the California Association of Realtors or their, their, um, their original sort of iteration of that institution, as well as the landlords and the, and the chambers of commerce all came together and passed a constitutional amendment in California that made it all but impossible to develop new public housing after the 1950s. 
movies. It is actually also part of the story of the eviction and, uh, if you will, redevelopment that led to the creation of Dodger Stadium because that was meant to be, uh, or that situation was meant to be, that the tenants would be moved out of Chavez Ravine, what is today Dodger Stadium, and the tenants would be moved into public housing that would be near the stadium. That never happened because of the passage of this constitutional amendment here um, in California that limited that. You know, I recently, about a year ago, uh, my partner and I, we actually uh, went, we were organizing a public housing estate or more appropriately, a, a public housing estate in degeneration, right? It was a public housing estate that was being uh, broken up piecemeal by a public-private partnership with some affordable housing developers. And you saw that very stark difference, basically, both in the quality of the housing that uh, tenants were living in, but also in, in the response of tenant leadership, the official tenant leadership, uh, to the, the demands of the tenants, but also to the pressures from the public housing authority. This is a very common experience in organizing public housing tenants, I should say, that you will find official tenant leadership councils that are, you know, in all but name captured by the public housing authority that build a particular sort of uh, of relationship of dependency with the public housing authority, and they will stifle efforts to organize the tenants from outside that structure as much as possible. Why? Because public housing authorities have experience, they have decades of experience, right? Organizing to break up, if you will, more radical uh, efforts by tenants to organize uh, their buildings. And so we actually confronted that very nakedly in, in this kind of effort to organize uh, some public housing tenants, Latino public housing tenants predominantly, who were trying to prevent being moved from their public housing uh, units into the affordable housing units that were being built on public land. They were very clear about the fact that their rights as public housing tenants were stronger than they were with these affordable housing uh, landlords in this private uh, public sort of uh, partnership. And it was terrifying, I should say, to hear the public housing authority very nakedly using fears of racial animosity and racial tensions to play into that effort. They would basically, there was this one meeting that I was in that was surreal, where the public housing authority brought a, a series of elder tenants who were Latino and the official RAC leadership that was predominantly black. And then you had the Latino uh, gentleman who had been brought by the public housing authority very uh, uh, softly but very clearly lecturing the Latino tenants who were trying to organize to stay in their public housing by reminding them of the specter of 1992, reminding them of the, of the specter of the riots and reminding them of the tension that led to black and brown kids, you know, killing each other on that public housing estate throughout the 1990s and definitely into the early 2000s. It was a, a horrifying spectacle, but very much an example of how these authorities are very good at creating these divisions and then and proposing solutions or proposing unity that ultimately is meant to break up solidarity, break up organizing efforts, and meant to, to break up these kind of more radical demands by the tenants, and the, the most radical demand of all, to stay in that public housing unit to begin with. So for that was a very, very clear lesson for me that we need to, it is still very vital to organize public housing tenants. And I also think, and this is something we could possibly touch on at some point today, 
you know, it is still very necessary to grapple with the the real history of what happened with public housing, how it was failed, and how that was a deliberate project by the state to create the the frankly, you know, Frankenstein-esque, you know, housing market that we live in today. What role does eviction defense play in a larger tenant organizing campaign? It's obviously essential, but how does that defensive work form part of a larger offensive strategy? And and are there also risks around centering eviction defense in an organization and more generally centering emergency response to such an extent that it crowds out other collective efforts? Because there are, as you all know, constant emergencies that tenants are facing. How how do you handle these in a way that build organizing power in the long run rather than distracting from doing so? And and conversely, how do we build power over the medium and long term while also answering tenants' urgent needs or, or through answering tenants' urgent needs? I guess I, I, I'll, I'll go. I, I don't – right now, I mean, I don't – ideally, we want tenants to be organized and aware of their rights well upstream of the possibility of them receiving an eviction notice. But I do think that eviction defense, I don't, I don't think it crowds out other forms of organizing. And I do think about it, I mean, as sort of, you know, it is, it is downstream. Ideally we want to be so well organized that no one gets an eviction notice at all, but that's just not how it works. Um, I think it's really important to think about um, the, the, the eviction machine in this country um, and so eviction defense tactics, even, and it kind of goes into a broader discussion about what people think about as offensive versus defensive tactics. And sometimes in some corners, people, uh, you know, comrades may be a little dismissive of, of purely defensive tactics. But the fact of the matter is the way that eviction court and eviction processes work in America is like, it's, it's an incredibly streamlined process um, on the part of real estate, right? So anything that you can do in terms of eviction defense, especially collectively, uh, but anything you can do in terms of eviction defense to gum up the works, right? I mean, I, I often say to people, you know, if every tenant, and again, even like basic policies, um, you know, that maybe some people would consider reformist, like right to counsel or, or things of that nature, every, all of these different policies, if every tenant had a lawyer, if every tenant knew their rights, or if every tenant were organized, et cetera, eviction court would simply break down. I mean, we're even seeing during COVID that eviction courts are um, unable. They're, they're not, uh, they're pretty rickety apparatuses. The only reason that they, uh, you know, they just have the legitimacy to just bring tenants in and just spit them out and evict them very, very quickly for, for no, for no reason. That's the way that it's set up. But there is a value of eviction court as a site of struggle to to really gum up the works there because eviction court in America simply would not function. There are a lot of ways to to break it down if every tenant, you know, if more tenants were organized or even even little basic things like them having the right to legal defense. And we and as far as COVID's concerned, we we really did see that. I mean, I, I forget exactly which city. I forget if it was Minneapolis or St. Paul. Um, but somewhere where um, it, there was a Midwestern city where the Landlord Bar Association was recently complaining that they couldn't, you know, take cases as fast as uh, they were they were getting them. Right. Um, there's a lot of value in in actually organizing around eviction court. Um, and I think it's complementary to, you know, organizing ahead of that process of, of a tenant getting a notice because it's a system that can be, I think, 
toppled. I mean, it feels like it's just a, it is a grinding machine, right? It's a lot to go up against, um, you know, the legal system. But I think there are a lot more opportunities to mess it up and throw a wrench in it um, through organizing, especially um, that 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 we that we need to look at as as one of many strategies. I mean, I think there's like two things here. There's one that's like eviction defense, sort of the way Shanti was describing, like sort of intervening at like eviction court as sort of just like a process intervention. Um, there is so much that has happened upstream, right? As Shanti said, upstream of the time, but before someone gets to like the state of having an eviction that ideally has happened. But I, I think you're also sort of talking about sort of like emergency direct actions and eviction, like eviction blockades, which are different from eviction defense and like sort of that particularly as a tactic. And all of those tactics are incredible opportunities for people to feel a lot of power. You really can like get a landlord to give up, basically. You you can like through a combination of both like legal strategy, direct action strategy, media strategy. Media strategy is like super important. It creates a spectacle around eviction and like like forces a lot of people like who probably don't really think about tenant organizing from like a left perspective, but maybe like nice liberals who live in the neighborhood have to like take a position and they're probably going to want to side with us maybe um depending on on what you can do so it like it it's it's a it's a tactic that can like draw a lot of support to a family to keep people in their homes and that has like a lot of values and benefits um and you can sort of build leadership through doing it you can help people feel power to stay in their homes and create community so it can be really transformative and you can create sustained organization around an eviction blockade or eviction defense that lasts beyond that sort of like moment of intervention. I also think that that stuff can be really, really hard to scale if you don't have a really robust volunteer infrastructure. And that's what really starts to lack in organizations that end up relying on service models to drive their organizing or right to counsel to drive their organizing. People end up sort of relying on the, the professionals who are going to do like the service work and then forget about all of the organizing that's required to maintain that service delivery as at all effective at all. So that's sort of just like one thing about eviction defense. It's so critical to keep people in their homes. Um, and there's many different types and styles of interventions that you need. Uh, the other thing that we are experiencing here is that right to counsel starts to break down when the eviction courts get overwhelmed. And the first thing that the court has decided to do is just say that they're basically just not enforcing right to counsel. They're like, okay, well, we made a good effort to get tenants attorneys and we didn't do that. And now we're just going to let the case move forward anyway. So our right to counsel in New York has had is in is in total crisis, and organizers are doing a lot of very cool work, interrupting housing courts, going in and um, sort of just like they're doing very cool speakouts in the calls of housing courts about what your rights are to an attorney. A tenant has a right, for example, a tenant has a right in New York to say that they want a right to counsel attorney, and then the case will maybe stop moving forward if the tenant sort of affirmatively are asking for their right to an attorney and they can go and they can get one. But you have to ask for it if you're not, and they're not, you have to ask for it. And if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. 
Um, so there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of like ways in which the state is trying to prevent right to counsel from being implemented in the way that it needs to be implemented. Yeah. And I'm sorry if you hear my cat meowing, but he's desperately trying to get into this room right now. It's a, it's kind of a whole thing. The tension between organizing around the emergency needs of tenants, right. And longer term efforts is a very real one. And it's a longstanding problem. I can't, uh, I can't remember how many conversations we've had, basically. And I think, Tracy, you and I have been in some of the same rooms, in fact, when we've talked about this problem, um, that there is a reality, right? That the people who come to us, by and large, are coming to us in crisis. I don't think that that is a necessarily a bad thing, but it is a, a thing that, that does create a sort of path dependency, right? In terms of the organizing that we do, where we're always trying to respond to people's um, specific uh, efforts or problems, and we're not necessarily um, always focused, you know, eyes on the prize with the kind of longer term organizing. And of course, the the problem, I think, part of it is in conceptualizing what we mean by an eviction to begin with, right? If we were to talk about the 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 legal process, the legal process of an eviction alone, then that has to take, I think, in a lot of ways, precedent, right? To, to respond to the threat of a sheriff coming and banging on someone's door and dragging them out of their homes, right? That is a very real thing. But there are other types of, of bad landlord behavior that to me is just part and parcel of the same process, right? Whether it's bad conditions where the landlord is very deliberately uh, milking the property or they are trying to stop investment in a property so that the tenants will move out, that is a very common strategy whether it be slapping particular or bizarre fees, uh, whether it is changing the rules or dynamics in the building, right? So the tenants can can no longer, for example, have their kids playing outside after 9 p.m. or that they turn off the lights in the buildings after a certain hour. There are all types of, of activities that landlords engage in to try to make the life of a tenant much harder, right, in a building. It, the goal being, of course, that the tenant is going to uh, quote unquote self evict. It's a term I hate. It's a term of art that really just describes a landlord making a, a tenant's life hell so that they move out. And then, of course, there's just other forms of kind of petty and frankly, sometimes very violent forms of harassment that landlords engage in to try to get people out. And so that creates a situation where the organizing efforts can oftentimes seem or be ephemeral. Uh, and and of course, structural problems we mentioned or I mentioned the lack of a Wagner Act, right, makes it so that the moment that that individual emergency effort collapses, there is very little to pick up the pieces after the fact, right? That is a very real problem. And of course, we're never going to be able to move away from kind of emergency response from eviction defense. It's never going to go away as long as, you know, landlordism is profitable. And as long as landlords are coming up with ever more sophisticated strategies to prevent their tenants from being able to get defended um, efficiently. Uh, right now in, in LA and actually throughout the state, one thing we've been seeing through the Tenant Power Toolkit is that landlords are oftentimes not serving their tenants their eviction paperwork so that tenants then end up losing their cases automatically. They get default judgments from the court and the landlord, the tenant suddenly realizes that they are getting evicted only because they have a sheriff's notice at the door. That is not by uh, by accident, right? We know that this is happening or increasingly so because tenants or rather landlords recognize that tenants have an opportunity to respond to their evictions a bit faster. It is landlords responding to the work of tenant organizers that is leading to, to a shift in how people have to respond. 
what is the response to that? To me, there is only one sort of long-term project or uh, or response to that that organizing problem, which is to build community, right? Tracy said this word a couple of times. That means treating the organizing effort as organizing tenants as a whole, right? Organizing tenants and the issues that tenants bring to us, whether that be things like uh, ICE potentially coming to their homes, whether it be uh, trying to get food parcels, whether they, it comes to applying for public benefits, whatever the tenant comes to us in crisis with that is not to do with their housing, we have to, we can uh, intervene there to ensure that the tenant feels that their tenant union, that the, t- the tenant organizing has value outside of just preventing them from receiving an unlawful detainer from the court. It could be DCYF issues child welfare issues have come up with us. That's absolutely right. No, Dan, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because actually that has happened where we have often tried to help tenants, uh, you know, mothers, single mothers in particular who are at risk of losing their children. Anyone who's done homelessness organizing, I've I've done this, you know, about eight years ago, nine years ago, we had a situation like that with a a college professor, an adjunct professor who literally was living on the streets with his wife uh, and their children and we had to intervene to prevent them from losing their kids. So no, that's exactly right. But it also means, though, building kind of, you know, institutions or organizing efforts based around joy, based around culture, based around, you know, feeding people. Uh, it, me- it has to mean throwing block parties like we've done in the LA Tenants Union. You know, the Eastside Local, Union de Vecinos have done this a number of times. In the Northeast Local, we've done this. In my previous organizing efforts in, on Skid Row, we would do this on Sixth and Gladys. We would have block parties for the in-house, for unhoused tenants. It really does mean building communities of joy so that it isn't just the grim prospect of losing your house that drives you to be a a neighbor, a proper neighbor to your neighbors. So many of the tenants who come to us in the LA Tenants Union have told me very in very different organizing campaigns, they have said this to me very clearly oftentimes that it was the organizing what taught them how to be a better neighbor, how to be a neighbor to begin with to other folks. That to me is about building a culture of organizing based around building community and not just as Sia has said, right? Not just providing a service that allows people to check in and out whenever they need it. If we're ever going to actually build, you know, something towards a tenant revolution and the ability of tenants to be able to determine the course of their own lives, it's going to have to begin by getting people to believe in the power that they can bring, right? By talking to their neighbors and building community with their neighbors. Tracy. Yeah, I guess just to, um, you know, sort of summarize and extend, you know, this idea of like, what is an eviction? Eviction by harassment, by neglect, by construction noise, by um, surveillance, by, of course, rent increases, right? Because rent increases are a legal form of eviction that will effectively evict someone from their home, but are completely normalized under our legal system, right? And eviction is both a court process, but it's also a policing process, right? The sheriff is the person who ultimately will come to your home and kick you out. Um, And so I think, you know, we often say, to build on what you said, Renee, like we often say, like, staying in your home is the most important thing that you can do if you're at risk of eviction. And because that power of occupying your unit 
And we, you know, saw a lot of that power restored through the pandemic where the union was doing an incredible amount of illegal lockout support. And that is really like, you know, when I think of this question, I think of the fact that like our logo in the union is about to change from a key to a bolt cutter, right? And it's because of the work that we've done to occupy our homes. Um, and I think about extending that kind that sense of occupation to like what it is that what is it that we're doing in buildings when we're on rent strike? We're staging an occupation. We're controlling the space of our homes. We're taking claim, we're claiming housing as a right without the need to pay for it, um, even if it's temporary. And then extending this idea of occupation to our neighborhoods, to controlling the territories of our blocks and to producing community. Like one of our, you know, one of the four, the core strategies for LATU is building relationships as security. And the effort that we put in to occupying space, to producing that community is really the security that we need to defend ourselves and defend each other. What in your various campaigns has winning looked like? I know that sometimes it can be complicated in base building. It's not when base building is the focus, there's not obviously such a direct answer. But for me, it's a it's a critical question because concrete wins are what the tenants we're organizing in Rhode Island are are counting on from getting involved with our organization. And I'd say that our short-term goal winning looks like getting repairs done, stopping evictions, things of that nature. But but long-term, our goal is to to force a sale of this entire portfolio to, to nonprofits, which have their own problem, but is, I think, our best-case scenario at the moment, nonprofits who will permanently maintain the units in good condition and and affordability, because this is an atrocious slumlord that will never be an okay landlord, like period. It's not his business model. What what does winning look like for you all? I think winning feels, winning is a process. Um, So winning feels like a dynamic and engaged tenant union that is continually meeting and growing. Winning is like a really powerful tenant assembly and how like tired and good you feel at the end of that and how the sort of like sense of belonging that people have after going through a meeting and like not wanting it to end because people are excited about the work that they're doing together. In addition to that, some of the things that I'm proud of that we've been able to win together through organizing tenants in New York State are, you know, reforms that foment organizing, like strengthening and expanding our state's rent control system. We're incredibly proud of that. Some of the ways in which we've been able to recruit tenant leaders out of our movement and run them for office without taking real estate money and win. um, Those are some examples of like tenants sort of exerting political power, both in their building and in their community. And You know, I think we are likewise grappling with what it means for tenants to sort of take over ownership of their building. We don't super have time to get into it here, but you could do a whole other podcast about what the role of not-for-profit and community, like, limited equity co-ops are in, like, taking control of real estate and land. You know, I think that there's been a lot of, we've experienced a lot of limitations We've experienced a lot of limitations of like the shared equity or limited equity cooperative model of ownership here in New York, but also people want control over their homes. Um, And 
So anything from like inking an agreement with the landlord or winning those repairs and winning them permanently or, or taking that real, taking it and turning it into real political power, either in the legislature or at the electoral level is, is what winning feels like. I mean, I can just jump in and say, that's, this is a hard question, but I mean, I think winning really does mean people, you know, keeping people in their homes first and foremost, right? Uh, ensuring that they're going to stay there. So often, I have to say on that very basic sort of, in that, in that kind of a campaigner tactic, that winning is actually more common than we realize, right? There are so many tenants that I've been able to intervene in to, to assist them in, in forming a tenants association and pushing back initially against landlord harassment that has resulted in people being able to stay in their homes. And that is a victory in itself, even if it oftentimes doesn't look like a big splashy victory at that, right? That is something that I think we should recognize that it can often feel, you know, winning can oftentimes feel unsexy and that's okay. I will say, though, that winning also means finding some silver linings even in losses, right? And very bitter losses. You know, some years ago, my partner led a year-long rent strike in South Central Los Angeles with the Expo tenants, where unfortunately those tenants were um, pushed out. And the one of the final things that he and, and his you know partner organizers put together was a, a, a big, beautiful community block party, basically, for the tenants. And from that effort, first off, there was just a beautiful kind of social event in and of itself, this kind of celebration of the fight. From that event, though, we also, or he was able, they were able to ultimately, you know, build something of a core of cadre, right, of organizers who today are leading some of the most exciting sort of fights um, in the LA Tenants Union um, from what was, we have to be very honest, an immediate or a short-term kind of loss, right? It means being able to build for the future, right? In the way that that I think Sia and, and Dan, you have also covered in, in a different way. I also think though, and this is kind of very relevant uh, for, I think on a personal level, but also in the organizations that I'm in, that, you know, I, I've oftentimes straddled both the kind of the policy world and the kind of on the ground worm's eye level organizing. And what I've been able to experience and notice and very, I think, happily kind of recognize is that the radical organizing that we do on the ground changes the dynamic, it changes the narrative, it changes the conditions that allow for reforms that are never going to be enough on their own, but definitely change the, the the conversation and the possibility that tenants have to be able to stay in their homes. So even in the very uh, grim sort of loss that we had in LA where our tenant protections were just lifted, there are new tenant protections that have started to kick in in the city of LA that are, you know, a, a bit of a game changer. They are something that we should recognize as being reforms that, you know, tenants in other places would kill to have, right? Uh, that was made possible from that radical organizing. And it was made possible, frankly, by never accepting that these reforms are enough. No one in the Los Angeles Tenants Union, no one in the Debt Collective, no one in any tenant organization thinks that any of this is enough. And that is precisely the kind of mentality, that kind of uh, that desire, right, to always build on even these kind of smaller victories that allows us to be able to build for something more. I am always really wary of the the kind claiming as a win the kind of electoral processes that end up with us stepping in to manage the scarcity of the state as my mentor Don Ryan would say or as to step in to 
negotiate the terms of our defeat, as my mentor Leonardo Vilches would say. And that's not to say that this, you know, the state is like a host of capacities and resources. That's not to say that they're impossible to leverage. But I think that there we have to maintain a kind of strategy about what are the role of our movement is in that. Is it to govern or is it to produce a crisis of legitimacy and capacity for the state? And, you know, like to me, winning is the abolition, abolition of the present state of things. Right. Winning is the abolition of rent. But in the meantime, right, like winning is institution building. It's the kind of like pedagogical process that means that we're growing an, a consciousness around like, you know, to quote James Boggs, like rights are what you make and what you take. That like we're putting the tactics of taking those rights and making those rights in the hands of more and more people and that we're building like a culture that is, you know, for lack of a better better way of putting it, like a church that has the potential to keep the faith for people like to participate over the course of a really of what will be a really long struggle. Shanti. Yeah, I guess I, I, I think I mean, everyone, I think, covered it really well. But, you know, I mean, I think about this, too, like as a as a like I'm a policy director, but I'm a policy director for an organizing formation. So, you know, when I like have to analyze what you know, sort of policy reforms that I think might understandably feel incremental compared to like our broader goal that Tracy just outlined so well. When I when I think about what what they actually do or, you know, when I think about the time that we're spending as a movement organizing for different different policies or different at the local level, whether it's rent control or just cause, whether it's right to organize, whether it's right to counsel, et cetera. It's, it's, is it like winning is building infrastructure, even when you not, even if you nominally lose it, you know, is it opening up a more radical horizon? Is it building the base um, to, to, you know, to win more in the future? I, I really just think about it as, as, as infrastructure more than, more than anything. Lastly, and there are a lot of questions I wanted to ask and we didn't have time to answer, but this has been an amazing discussion. Lastly, what role does supply play in this all, specifically in terms of expanding the public or social housing stock? Because in Rhode Island, we've made the establishment of a public developer a top priority specifically because we see it as something that would, you know, generally expand public services for the public good on a general level, but concretely because it would, one, create create a public option in the housing market that would increase tenant leverage vis-a-vis landlords, like very concretely for pioneer tenants, and then more generally allow us to make a demand to make a demand directly on the state to address the housing crisis through housing production in a way that's that's not currently possible. Sia? So on the question of housing supply, two things. One, I really like the idea of having a public developer that can do expropriation I think we've all experienced as tenant organizers the idea that we want to work together with tenant associations and we want to take over housing, but the community land trust model or the not-for-profit developer model or the limited equity cooperative model, all of those are like really lacking and are not challenging real estate capital the way that we want to. And so the idea of a public developer that has the capacity to like really do expropriation and to be sort of an an option for tenant public stewardship and tenant ownership is really attractive. I also think 
that one of the reasons why we talk about a need for a public developer and the need for public housing that can serve a broader part of the population than public housing currently serves is because we talk about sort of like the political constituency that is necessary to maintain a public housing system. That political constituency can only like exist and be created through tenant organizing. It doesn't it doesn't get created by policy and the creation of like a public developer on its own. So I think that, you know, we have to win social housing and create new model public housing and build new model public housing, not just expropriation, but we also have to build. But we can't let that movement get ahead of the tenant power building movement. Because ultimately, if you're building new public housing, but it's in this state and this sort of like capitalist state that is more interested in policing us than it is in like providing high quality housing, that's not going to end up as a very good option. So we need to have that sort of sort of countervailing force of tenant organizing that is capable of making the public housing that we're going to one day build or whatever be at all successful. So I really don't think that you can do one without the other. Another sort of thing that I just would like add to this debate is that we worked really hard to get our state to expropriate vacant hotels during the pandemic and convert them to housing for homeless New Yorkers. We were actually able to pass a law that would require the state to do that. And the state refuses, right? Because they don't want to be a developer or a landlord. They're like so interested in leaving that part of the industry to the private sector. So I think there's really limits on um, what you can do with sort of social housing legislation and public housing legislation in a moment with this state generally, and also with this state specifically, in New York state specifically, the state is not going to challenge the real estate industry. They don't really want to. Um, and even if we're like, we want you to own, we want you to own, we want you to be a landlord. They're like, no, please don't, don't make us, don't make us. And so we are not going to be able to control that until we have built the tenant power. And we don't need to wait to do the public developer until we have done that. But we need to be really strongly committed to doing both at the same time. And we can't let one happen first. Perhaps even dialectically. Yeah. <laughs> Shanti. Our housing system under the capitalist state, you know, I'm going to sound a little bit like an econ nerd for a second, but it responds to investment demand, right? Globally, but also locally. It doesn't respond to the actual demand for occupation of housing that people have. And I think that's really important when we're talking about the broad concept of supply that if you look at the demand, you know, our, our system of supply is responding to the occupation or the demand for investment, not the demand for shelter. And, you know, our choices in this current system to res- either restrict housing supply or build housing supply, you know, through the market, they're both tied up in the fundamental interests of real estate capital to maintain housing as a continuously appreciating asset. Right. That, you know, they're not I I think I don't really think about it as a binary when we think about, you know, artificial restrictions on market supply versus, you know, the 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 push to uh, remove them under any circumstance. And as far as, you know, the fight for social housing is concerned, I mean, just Sia touched on this. But politically, I mean, you're not going to win social housing or public housing or even, you know, the sort of general concept that people throw around of, quote unquote, abundant housing. You're not going to get the capitalist state to invest in existing housing or or new housing without organizing the political constituency that needs to live in it and that needs to defend it in the long term. And that's tenants, 
Like there's, you're not going to get any of, you're not going to solve the housing question or the, you know, supply question or whatever you want to call it without organizing tenants. There, there is no way around that. Tracy. Yeah. I mean, I I think I just want to like bring up this idea, right? That like, what does it mean to add to supply, not just by building buildings, but by building power and building power to expropriate and use eminent domain. And these are capacities of the state that we can leverage um, and that are, you know, part of what is coming out of the struggle of tenants right now. Like if we look at what tenants in Hillside Via are doing in the context of quote unquote affordable housing, if we look at what tenants on Flower Drive um, and Second Street are organizing in the context of living in rent controlled housing, if we look at the unhoused residents of the Grand Hotel who are in Project Room Key, the demands, there is a common demand. And that is for the state to use its power of eminent domain to remove these properties from the private market and to ensure that tenants have long-term stability Uh, and dignity in their and control over their living situations. So I know that we're like often stuck talking to technocrats about like people's backyards, right? But like this is the kind of housing that people are demanding for themselves. They're demanding control over their housing. And I, I do think that it's really important. Like I think about Inez from Flower Drive who you know, she gave an amazing speech at the end of the Autune convention. And what she said was, you know, I used to think of communism as being controlled, but now I understand it. I understand it as community control. And this is the this is the knowledge that is being produced through struggle on the ground, that the thing that people want as in the tenant movement as tenants where you don't control your housing is community control. And so for me, it's really thinking about how, like the question of supply, like I think we can answer the question of the supply by answering the question of how can we leverage the capacity of the state to expand community control over the places where we live. Renee. Yeah, I would very much agree with yeah, no, I'd, I'd very much agree with everything that that both Shanti and, and Tracy have, have kind of outlined. And, and to put like maybe or to comment around the edges, you know, I think that, you know, as Shanti very eloquently put it, right, the real estate market, the real estate industry is going to respond to the, the signals, right, broader uh, economic sort of s- signals and imperatives uh, that have very little to do with what people actually need and have everything to do with whether or not they're going to be able to command a return on their investment worth the, the worth their while, right? And of course, on the question of supply, we always have to also consider the cost of capital itself to begin with as, as kind of a very determining uh, factor. I think the the question of supply always elides or it, it doesn't entirely account for the fact that uh, people need housing as a thing that we need to live in first and foremost, and oftentimes treat it as though it is just something that, you know, with the right sort of financing mechanism, we're going to be able to get the thing that we need. It's why, as you know, others have already stated, we cannot 
solve this issue alone by having that one neat trick or that one nice policy solution that's going to be able to provide it because ultimately as others have also already said the you know that the real estate industry isn't necessarily itching to build uh, the the housing that we require that the communities require to be able to produce housing that is affordable that is clean that is safe that is um you know healthy for folks to live in that is also i should say uh housing that is also able to create the conditions for a deepening of community so creating uh, housing with sufficient community space places where people can can um, can live together, properly speaking, can educate their kids together, can grow as individuals and as families, the, the industry is not necessarily itching to do that. And so the kind of stuff that we're actually wanting to do, right, the, the, the stuff that we really want to do is a transformative sort of program for uh, tenant power and tenant control. Right. It means being able to build a a radically different sort of housing system than the one we have today. And so I guess to me, the question of supply is important, but also incidental to that broader point, which is that what we're actually seeking to do is to upend the the real estate state, if you will, uh, entirely right from the ground up. What we need to do is to move from a system that treats housing as a as a as a speculative asset one that people use on a day-to-day, you know, on their day-to-day lives to be able to reproduce themselves, to live a joyful uh, and happy life, right? That is ultimately the world that we're seeking to to build. Social housing is a term that has increasingly become, you know, uh, sexy over the last couple of years. And of the, the, you know, the lefty in me, who has also lived in, you know, former social housing, uh, I'm, I couldn't be happier about that. I couldn't be happier about the fact that we're finally starting to talk about a world in which housing is treated differently, right? A world in which, as Shanti has said, being obsessed with uh, building, a, 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 you know, ever kind of larger returns for property or landowners isn't the, the thing that we're attempting to do, but rather we are trying to ensure that everyone's safely housed uh, with dignity, etc., I think that that is uh, important and and good. I do also want to ensure that we understand the implications of what that means, right? And so as Tracy has talked about expropriation, it means that we are moving towards, we have to move towards a world where the the common wheel is the the primary thing that we uh, obsess over or that we want to achieve. And we do that by ensuring that more and more property is being taken off that speculative market to begin with. It means then, again, building both the housing that doesn't yet exist, but also ensuring that where people are happy and have community and have decent living already, that they get to be able to, to, to stay there. Ultimately, for me, what all of this amounts to is people should be able to determine, you know, they can't always determine where they where they come from, but people should have the right to determine where they will be, right? They can they should be able to determine where they will end. And I think that to me is a fundamental question of human dignity. And to me, the question of social housing and the question of building tenant power ultimately comes down to that, that people should have an ability and a right to be able to stay where they will be. Shanti Singh, Tracy Rosenthal. Renee Moya and Sia Weaver, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having us.
That was my interview with Shanti Singh, Tracy Rosenthal, Renee Moya, and Sia Weaver. If you want to help out, please give generously to the Pioneer Tenant Support Fund. The link to donate is in the show notes. Shanti Singh is the Legislative and Communications Director at Tenants Together, a California coalition of over 50 tenant unions and housing justice organizations. Tracy Rosenthal is a writer and co-founder of the LA Tenants Union, whose book, Abolish Rent, is forthcoming from Verso. Renee Christian Moya is the Tenant Power Coordinator with the Debt Collective and an organizer with the Los Angeles Tenants Union. Sia Weaver is the Coordinator of Housing Justice for All, a statewide coalition of grassroots organizations fighting to build tenant power and end homelessness in New York State. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, in present-day society, the instruments of labor are the monopoly of the landlords, the monopoly of property and land is even the basis of the monopoly of capital, and the capitalists. While other podcasts only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us at The Dig Radio on Twitter and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling other people about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 